welcome everybody. I have a great guest today, Mr. Ben Lamont, who I met uh, over a decade ago. We were just talking earlier before we started rolling. It would be unfair to say we've known each other for over a decade because we haven't been in touch as much as I would have liked to have, uh, mostly because we've both, both been busy um, with our own things. And Ben, you're on a different time zone over there in uh, Northern California. Uh, but Ben is an OKRs coach. And actually, would it be fair to say a coach of coaches? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I'm an OKRs coach. I coach my clients and I coach other coaches who coach their clients. Okay, so a lot of coaching going on right there. So a lot of yeah. coaching to get into the coaching. So with that, Ben, let's let's kind of go back in the Wayback Machine, talk about how we first met. We first met at, I believe it was a, it was a, um, it wasn't Performance Institute. It was AMSI, American Strategic Management Institute. That's it. Yeah, good memory. <laughs> budget and Forecast Conference. I remember I was asked to speak on budgeting and forecasting. And at that time, you were, I believe, VP of Marketing for Alight. Yeah, it was a startup company uh, yeah. that is no longer in business. Uh, in, well, actually, let me back up to what happens here. It's important to understand that I started out as an engineering guy. And I'm talking about uh, measuring the sound on freeways and acoustical engineering. So when I applied to college, I was doing that in high school. So when I applied into college, I said, oh, I'll do engineering. I've heard of that. And oh, you can get a job with that. So it was very simple. So I majored in engineering and graduated from college. That was at UC Davis here in Northern California. And then um, got it. When I didn't know what to do, so I went to Stanford for graduate school in management science and engineering, which really was, I would say, a step toward an MBA. Right? Uh, as an engineering major, I knew I didn't want to do engineering. Like I didn't, I didn't want to solve problems on bridges. I, I got a, a classic example of I started going out for some interviews for jobs in engineering, and you know, you spend a lot of your time in engineering school studying problems. And the guy that I was interviewing with says, "Well, if you want to get a job here, you can forget everything you learned in school." Now. I'm sitting here going like, wait, I'm going to forget everything I learned in school. Well, that's that's kind of bad. I should have majored in like, you know, political science or something, <laughs> you know, because I had to learn a ton for engineering. So he yeah. says, yeah, you see that bridge? I'll never forget. He says, points it out there. You see an equation on that bridge? And I said, no. He said, yeah, that's because in the real world, it's not like textbooks where we just give you a problem and it's like the same thing and you just solve the problem. In engineering, in the real world, that's not how it works. And I, and I was like, yeah, you know what? I don't want to do this. So I went to graduate school in management science and engineering at Stanford which by the way, was called Engineering Economic Systems Operations Research Industrial Engineering and Management when I first went there. Kind of, how's Holy that crap. for a mouthful? I would almost want to show you my graduation diploma. It's like my major was like a word wrap, okay? So long story short, I ended up dropping out of a PhD program at Stanford and took a job in management consulting. Well, because I was an engineering guy, you know, had that on my resume, they basically said, hey, Ben, here's, here's Excel, it's a spreadsheet. Why don't you sit in front of the computer and do all the business modeling for us? And I was like, fine. So I did that. I was pretty good at that. And that's that a very, you can imagine, led into budgeting and forecasting. It's like, hey, you know, you can build spreadsheet models. You're really good at that. Just do that. You can make pretty good money. Got, I got to be honest with you. You can't make that much money. You're basically an analyst building and, you know, budgeting and forecasting models. That's when I met this guy, Rand. Rand Her, a legend who invented Pillar, the first budgeting software solution, you know, to get people out of spreadsheets. Okay. So this guy was pretty, you know, a little bit of an older guy with gray hair. I mean, he invented this back when we used floppy disks. Okay. So the next thing, you know, I'm like, wow, this guy's got some cool software he's inventing and it's got this cool units rate amount structure. And it's like budgeting and planning. I'm kind of geeking out with him. And I ended up taking a job with him. So now I'm a budgeting and planning software guy. Really, this was not anything I ever thought I would end up in, but here I am. And because it's a startup, you nailed it. I ended up being the vice president of everything, basically, ironically, except engineering. <laughs> I, the only class that I got a C in was Fortran, okay, which was a programming language. And I by the way, I was, yeah, Fortran, it's a pain in the butt. It had the compile thing where you had to have everything had to be perfect. If you hit return, it would either work or it just said, sorry. That error. was one of the last classes I took before I changed my major out of computer science. It was that in JCL. Yes. I was taking Fortran and JCL, <laughs> job control language, back yeah, in the day. Basically. When we, was, the point about... is anybody who's <laughs> taken Fortran, you've dated yourself, okay? Because I actually took Fortran, got a C, and I was kind of a good student. So I said, wait a minute, this is bad. I want to retake the class. And here's the funny part of the story. Fortran is no longer offered. I was the very last person to be able to take Fortran at the University of California. I was in the very last class 
literally the very last class. Wow. I go to retake it and they say, I'm sorry, you can't take it. It's been repeated with, drum roll please, C. The, the name oh, of the wow. class was C that was, re that was replacing Fortran, which I had gotten a C in Fortran. And then I started looking at the curriculum of this and I said, you know, I'm just gonna end up getting a C and C, forget it. I'm not gonna retake it, I'm out. So I ended up, that's my computer science story, boy. It's a rough subject. And then I learned that everybody just cheats on, on computer programming classes. Like we had to invert a matrix or something. There was this one guy that knows how to do it and everybody just, because in Fortran, unless you have it perfect, like I said, you just get an F. It's just, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. It doesn't what, even give you any feedback. What you just said reminded me of, so I changed my major like six times before I settled on accounting. And I actually had that reaction that you just described to the engineering curriculum. So I was in engineering. Oh, yeah. I took engineering graphics back in the day when we were, you know, doing manual drafting with the T-squares and all that stuff. And I took that one class, realized I couldn't draw, uh, draw a straight line with a ruler. But then I looked at the curriculum for engineering. And when I looked at the description for differential equations, yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm out of here. If yeah. I can't understand the description of the class, I probably shouldn't major. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You were smart. Well, anyway, anyway, I, I ended up getting out of. Um, I got to say, I lost my train of thought there. I was doing the engineering thing, did the Stanford thing, did the management consulting, the spreadsheets, the computers. Next thing I know, I'm at this company called Alight Planning. We build budgeting and planning software, and because we're a startup, I'm a jack of all trades. So I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm selling the software. All of a sudden, I'm implementing the software. I'm marketing the software. I'm doing the business development with the partners in the software. I'm speaking about the software, but I'm not programming the software, okay? So that was the good news because you're talking to the guy that got a C in Fortran and really just couldn't even bother to learn C. And so we had a development team. They did all the programming. I could kind of think like a programmer, but I really wasn't a programmer. So this was kind of, ironically, here I'm working in a software company and I'm starting to get my business education because I'm... I'm working in all these different areas. Like I said, marketing, sales. I loved all of it. But my startup company, which I was one of the, basically one of the founding members of this company in the very early stages, seven years later, they had to fire me. And so, you know, I, I always say this because it was a pretty low point for me because to be honest, I had, a, I had a VC advisor and he said, Ben, if you're ever in a startup, after about two years, you have to make a decision. Either you're going to go all in or you're going to get out. And it's going to be a hard decision. But if you see any potential that that company can make a billion dollars, you need to stay. And he, mean, he meant any potential that it can make a billion dollars, you need to stay. But if you don't see any potential that that company can make a billion dollars, you need to get out. And I never forget this. After two years with a light, I'll be honest with you, I saw zero potential that we could make a billion dollars. I mean, we were a niche player. There's no way we're going to be a billion dollar software company. But I stayed. Ooh. Turns out huge mistake, right? But look at Gray, gray uh, the, the side can also be good because I learned a lot, right? I ended up playing all these roles, yeah. marketing, sales, whatever. So fast forward seven years, they lay me off. My own startup company lays me off. And of course, the worst part is they give me stock. At this point, my stock is so diluted and worth so nothing that it's like just a pain in the butt. I get this weird form from the K-19 or whatever the form is. And it's just a pain in the, uh, you know, in the you know what. And I have to pay uh, my accountant to go over my forms and get the form. And you know, I pay more in taxes than my stock will ever be worth just to you, maintain you my... You, you, you remind me of, so I used to work at AutoNation and, and I was right. very early on in the AutoNation days. My desk, my first desk was in the hallway outside of the, the vice chairman's office. Um, and it, I, I'm like the classic story of a day late, and a day late and a dollar short, right? I worked at Blockbuster before that. And mm. several of the guys I work with uh, are probably millionaires from their Blockbuster stock that obviously everybody knows Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore, right? But that's, that's how far back that was. But I was a little bit too late to get on. My stock options from AutoNation were underwater mm. when I, I got laid off, when they shut down the entire division that I worked in. And I used to joke that my, my options were so far underwater, you might as well call me Aquaman. They were worth nothing. <laughs> um, they actually reprint the, the stock tanked so badly, they repriced stock options because they were afraid they were going to lose people because their options weren't worth anything. So the, the golden handcuffs weren't very golden. Um, they obviously turned that around. I, I work for a division that doesn't exist anymore, um, which is basically, if you think about CarMax, that's, that was the original idea for AutoNation in the beginning before they started mm -hmm. acquiring all the new car dealerships. Anyway, what you guys are seeing right here is part of the reason that Ben and I, we met at one of these, basically a, 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 a multi-day conference and we got into conversations like this 
like every day. We just had these, yeah. these odd kind of things in common where we just kind of constantly pick up the conversation where we left off. So, so you, you get let go at a light. Yeah. So what do I do? Well, at this point, it's like, I mean, you got to picture this. I'm coming home from San Francisco. I've been laid off by this new VP of sales guy. And it's, I can still hear him now. He had come from the chamber of commerce. Okay. So here's this guy that literally is now selling software at this company that's going down the tubes. Right. And he has to lay me off. That's his first real big move, big thing at this company. And what does he do? He lays me off in public in San Francisco. I guess he's really good at laying people off. He says, you have like an hour. You can, I'm going to wait here for you to like, you know, delete all the things from your computer. We need to take it. Is this like the Jerry Maguire? Oh, it was totally a Jerry Maguire. And then I have to go (laughs) on the ferry boat home, you know, without my computer and look into the distance and realize I have no job. And and this guy, the, the chamber guy, who, by the way, he wanted to put, imagine this, a software company, right? He wanted to have images of our photos, headshots at the bottom of our signature, because, hey, that's what we did at the chamber. I'm like, you know, real estate agents do that kind of stuff, right? They put their little headshot at the bottom. If yeah. you're talking to somebody in business, nobody puts their headshot at the bottom of their signature. But anyway, this was yeah. his big idea to turn our company around. He said, once we put our headshots at the bottom of our signatures, our sales are going to triple. That's what we did at the chamber. And I'm sitting changer, here. Dude. Yeah, dude. Oh, man, <laughs> this company's in good hands. No surprise. This company ended up going belly up. Um, of course, he was laid off a year later himself. But the, the punchline is, I got to get a job. So at this point, um, I ended up joining the competition, Adaptive Planning. Now, at the time, and I, some of you can relate to this, I was a software company A, and Adaptive was co- software company B, where software company A was basically going to go to business, and software company B was going to win. But I had spent the last seven years trying to take down software company B, <laughs> because software companies with their big competitors, they're not friends. And I hated all these people. Like, I mean, I didn't even really know them, but I just like, I, anybody mentioned adaptive planning and I would be like, no, you can't do it. It's going to be this budgeting well, planning software in the cloud. And correct me if I'm wrong, but one of your selling points back then when you were with Alight is adaptive was in the cloud. And yeah. you have to, to put this into context for people, this is what, 2013-ish, somewhere around yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. So if, if, you, if you think back to, to that time, everything wasn't in the cloud like it is now. So at that time, there were a lot of uh, CTOs that were poo-pooing anything in the cloud for security reasons. And, that, and it, as I remember, that was one of a light selling points was well, yeah, that we right. were not in the cloud. Right. right. And the interfaces were terrible. Okay. When you go back to the, this was before, I think you couldn't even double click. You couldn't do any keyboard shortcuts. So if you were kind of a budgeting and planning software guy, the last thing you wanted to do was go onto some website somewhere and just like wait for things to load and refresh. And it was really a bad situation. Of course, now we know that that all changed. So anyway, I joined the competition. They paid me really well. I had this plush job. Finally, now I could have a nice job where I didn't have to work that hard and they were paying me a lot of money. And this company was actually doing really well. They're still in business. And, you know, why would I leave that job? Well, this is the funny thing. I had just gone through this conversation with my wife. I'm never joining a startup again. I'm getting older, whatever. I'm not, I'm too getting too old for this. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to sit back at this adaptive planning thing and kind of cash out, live my life, make some money, be like the rest of us lazy corporate Americans that are just living their content lives and not trying to go for it. You know, I'm going to give up on my make it big thing. Right. And it was going along. And this is the funny part. Two months into my job, I get poached because what I didn't tell you was I had a little consulting gig between a light and adaptive. And that consulting gig was a KPI analyst. I get called up from a buddy of mine who actually had been an advisor to light. He's like, dude, I feel bad for you, man. You don't have a job. Like, you know, you have a family. I mean, what are you going to do? He's like, look, my company is looking for a KPI analyst. It's like a four week project. I say, I'll take it. I don't even really know what it is, but I'm like, I'll take it. It's $4,000 a week, which at the time was big money for me. I take the project and I don't know what to do. They want a KPI analyst. I ended up doing OKRs, right? This is where the OKRs comes into play. I had learned OKRs from a guy named Jeff Walker who joined the board of a light, my startup, He was the guy that invented Walker Interactive, the first interactive general ledger. And that's right. That's accounting software. So here I was. I had Rand, the first guy that ever invented budgeting and planning software, right? And I had Jeff Walker, the guy that invented accounting software and actually became the founder of Oracle Applications. So we're talking about Oracle Financials in those days of the 80s. And Jeff Walker, who became my mentor on OKRs, he had taken Oracle from a $20 million company to a billion dollar company in five years because Oracle was a hardware company until Jeff came on board around 1984. And so the punchline is, how did he do it? OKRs, which came out of Intel. He learned about OKRs because they brought in a guy named Gary Kennedy over to Oracle from Intel. And I'm telling you, OKRs was a way of communicating. 
This is our objective. Here's how we know we've measured it. These are the action plans. This is our status. Here's our confidence score. So we had a common goal language. Every single company or every single team within the company had a common goal language. And in fact, they would start with, here's our mission. And they would say, for example, we are the accounts payable team. Our mission is to pay the vendors and keep them happy. Our objective is this, right? Our key results are that. And this is, so that's, it was almost like a military kind of a thing, right? They didn't mm -hmm. have time to waste time. Okay. When you're going from 20 million to a billion in five years, and you're more than doubling your revenue every year, and you're bringing people in like crazy, hiring, you know, your company's growing 2X every year. You don't have time to have problems, right? You have to be super efficient. So the communication had to be absolutely perfect. And that's what OKRs was doing. So Jeff started mentoring me in OKRs. So guess what? When I go to do this KPI analyst job, I'm looking at their business strategy and they want me to look at this as context and then give them recommendations on how to do KPIs. But here's the funny part. I get the heads up from my buddy who's going to bring me in. And he says, yeah, you're going to be the KPI analyst, but whatever you do, don't come in here and try to brainstorm all the KPIs with all the departments. We've already done that and it didn't work. Now I go out and get a book on KPIs and it says, what do you do? You brainstorm all the KPIs with all the departments. It's like, it's telling you to do that. So it's I'm thinking, right. okay, well that didn't work. So then I'm reading more of the book and it's like, you know, people have KPIs, they have these dashboards, it's IT, there's the, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And so that's when it occurs to me, well, what do I know how to do? OKRs. So I look at this 15 page strategy document, translate it into OKRs. So it says like, I mean, they, this company, I think had four objectives, right? One of them was uh, go international. One of them was improve the experience of our users. One of them was develop innovative products, whatever those objectives were. And I went, they call them pillars, by the way, in their business plan. So I go to the CEO's office when I first arrived, and this is on the East Coast. And I meet with them and I say, I think I found your, I've translated your 15 page document to this one page document where I have the OKRs written down here. This is, this is what I'm sensing. Uh, here's the objective, blah, 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 the financial one, those such and such. Here's the one for international where I can't find any key results. I don't really know as I'm reading it, I'm seeing different things about maybe we're going to go into Singapore or what's going to happen. So I don't really know if there's any key results here, but maybe you guys can help me with this. And he says, uh, can we ask you to leave for a minute? And remember, you're talking to the guy that just got fired from a startup. Yeah, so that's I, not a... <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you're going to wait in the hallway. I'm like, oh God, you're going to fire me before I even start. So I'm, I'm going through these worst case scenarios. About five minutes later, they call me in and they say, Ben, we want you to do this OKRs thing with every one of our departments. We have 30 departments and they all need this. And I want, I want to see what you come up with when you meet with them. And by the way, uh, that international objective we agree with you. We don't think we have that international objective. We're going to take it out of the strategy plan. It's There's no way to measure it. So I don't even know. We don't even know what we're talking about. You're right. Because I told them, I said, unless you know what measurable progress looks like for this international objective, you don't have an international objective. You're doing this. So, You're doing leadership by hand-waving. So this sounds like a good time to talk about the difference between KPIs and OKRs, right? Because you were brought in for one, you ended right. up doing the other. Um Talk a little bit about the difference between the two and why OKRs, and you'd mentioned this, OKRs has been around a lot longer than most people are probably aware of. Um, it's just something that was more, I guess, more popular in a certain community than, than globally. You nailed it. Yeah, OKRs gets popular um, after Andy Grove from Intel brings it out in like the early 80s. Uh, is when you start to see it taking off in the Silicon Valley. And this is when people were using like, you know, dot matrix printers and things like that. So it's pretty ancient, right? That's like what, 50 years old. I mean, or yeah, 40 something, 40 or 50 years old, whatever you want to call it. So it's been around for a while. And it's an offshoot of MBOs, management by objectives, right? There's all these acronyms and business buzzwords everywhere. The yeah. thing about KPIs, right? Key performance indicators, right? Is that there's no standard definition. This is one thing I found when I was doing my research on KPIs. And when I talk to people, I get this, it's also multicultural. So for example, um, some people, at, like I was working with a bank and they said, I said, let me see your KPIs. I'm not kidding. The guy shows me a binder with like 2000 metrics. Here are the KPIs. Yeah. People and you're, you're at, you know, that's a lot. Metrics versus KPIs things is probably the, the first place to start before we even get to OKRs. Yes. I think what they thought of KPIs when at that bank was, oh, you mean my metrics? Those are yeah. my KPIs. So that was one thing. The next thing was I worked with Airbnb um, and, or it was something like Airbnb, some kind of a business model like that, where they did hotel bookings. Uh, it might have been booking.com. I don't remember actually, but it was one of those. And I said, well, what are your KPIs? I said, room nights booked. The number of room nights booked is our company's KPI. That's it. <laughs> There's one KPI, room nights booked. 
our, we measure our success by how many room nights we book. And every day we put the number up and if it's over a thousand, we're good. And if it's under a thousand, we're not. And that's as simple as it is. And it was like, wow. So that's really one different way to use KPIs because it's KPI. It's there's one. <laughs> yeah. So I found that quite interesting that, you know, different people use the word KPI like totally extremely differently. Now, sometimes KPIs is the basis of incentive compensation. So you'll say, oh, we're going to pay you on your KPIs. Here's the big aha that I had because I went to China and they asked me about KPIs and OKRs. And guess what? No can, no can do. Doesn't matter. I was like a broken record. They wanted to hear the difference. To them, KPIs is how I get paid my bonus. That's all there is to it. It's a very hierarchical culture. Your yeah. boss says, these are your KPIs. You achieve it. You get paid more. You don't. You get paid less. That's it. It's so simple in their culture over there in China that you can't mess with it. If I try to explain, but there's also OKRs, they just look at me like, wait, do I get my bonus if I hit those? And yeah, I'm trying to sounds... say, you know, no, they're different. They're OKRs. They're about trying to, you know, communicate better or talk about aligning on what's the most important goal and how we're going to measure it. And they just look at me like, so it's KPIs, but I don't get paid. And, and I, it was like the conversation just could not advance. It sounds like so, a lot yeah, of, you can be confused. Sounds like a lot of conversations I've had over the years around anything related to the budget. Or when I worked at Royal Caribbean, we called it the plan. And the, the mantra there was the plan is the plan. And so you sit down and try to talk to someone about a forecast. Right. And how are we how are we going to implement plans to reach a forecast number? And they just kept coming back to the plan and the budget because that's what their compensation was based on. Exactly. And we were it's, trying it's, to think more from the, the CFO's perspective, like, okay, that's fine. The, the plan is the plan. That's in a book on a, on a shelf somewhere. We're focused on the forecast. We need to change some of our actions so that we can reach a forecast number. The budget yes. at this point is not relevant to me, but to them insurance is because that's what they're getting bonus based Exactly. On. I was working with a group in Berlin early in my OKRs career. So this is going back to about 2014. And this guy in this one department I say, well, what is your objective, right? And by the way, let me just define that. So what is the most important area for your group or your team to make measurable progress in the near term? What is the focus area to make progress in the near term that's measurable progress and why? Okay, that's the objective. And he says, well, my objective is, and he goes right into this. I need to refresh people's laptops because our objective is to keep people on the latest technology so that they can be more efficient. And I need to make sure that People's laptops, no one has laptops that are more than two years old. And that's my that's my key result is to increase the percentage of people that have laptops that are less than two years old from 60% to 80%. I need to move the needle on that because we're falling behind. We've been hiring a lot of people. I got to optimize the laptop thing. So that's my key result. I don't even know why I'm here. I already I already have OKRs. I have my, my we've been doing this already. So why are you here? Literally, that's what he asked me. And I said, okay, interesting. So the most important area for your team to focus on making measurable progress is basically to reflect, refresh these laptops. And he said, yeah. And I said, why? I said, why? And he said, well, that's my job. And I said, well, that's interesting. That's not really what I call critical thinking. With OKRs, you have to do critical thinking. You have to ask why. You have to understand why that's the focus right now, not that's my job. I had a similar group in QA, quality assurance. And I said, what's your objective? Same kind of question. He said, well, we need to optimize regression testing. I said, well, why? That's our job. I said, well, wait a minute. How's the regression testing going right now? Actually, it's going really well. Well, then why do we need to improve it? We don't. Well, okay, then your objective is to optimize regression testing and it's already going really well. So basically then how are we going to measure that we're optimizing it? Well, we're already optimizing it. We just need to keep our KPIs where they are. Ah, Back that's the, the big KPI aha. Thing. Keeping your KPIs where they are, that's not it. That's not key results. Key results are about moving the needle. So I said, let me ask you that again, Mr. Quality Assurance uh, VP. So where do you want to focus to make improvement now and why? So, well, the thing that we really need to do is we need to focus on getting along better with the engineers. We need to collaborate better with the engineers. Really, why is that important? Oh, let me tell you. And so now he gets all emotional. He says, well, you know, the engineers are complaining that we're providing, you know, the information, but it's like we're not doing, we're not escalating the right things. We're giving them too many reports. They're saying the ones that are super important, we're never getting it done right the first time. And then that screws them up. And I'm like, okay, well, let's get the engineers in here and let's come up with an objective. And let's make sure that we're aligned. And they're like, oh, you mean you can bring the engineers in here? Well, but we, they're not in our department. I, I'm like, I know. This isn't about your bonus or your performance review. This is about what's the objective that's going to help our organization, not just our team, 
get measured like we're good, but rather how are we going to move the needle here in this company? What do we need to do? Let's get the engineers in here. And they started making key results like tier one items are delivered within two weeks of request, you know, and then they came up with like a service level agreement. I said, that's not going to be it. It's improve, increase the percentage of tier one items that are delivered within one week from you know, whatever to whatever. And we need to, because the what, two weeks is too long. That's like the maximum. We don't want that. We want, so the engineers were saying, no, two weeks is, uh, we want to move it into one week. We want faster. And then it was also quality. Increase the percentage of tier one items that are resolved and not sent back to QA from, and they were like, I don't even know what that is, but it's a lot. Well, then let's get a, let's figure out what that number is. And then we can set targets. So now we're getting into OKRs by having this discussion. OKRs is really more of a verb, right? As opposed to a set Ooh. of numbers or metrics. So. You just made me think about something. Um, when when you and I would see each other at these conferences and get into conversations, we would often get on, on tangents on just different things that we had in common or you know yeah. common interests. And as you were talking, what what kept uh, coming up in my mind again and again is you, you were talking about things where you were asking questions that they had not asked themselves before. That's it, right? And it gets to one of the things that I talk about all the time when we talk about uh, communication is listening, right? It's very easy to ask a question, but if we're not listening properly, um, those questions sometimes can get lost. And one of the things that I think you've managed in your career to do very well is, although when you and I talk, we can kind of get off on tangents and seem like we're easily distracted, the way you have done your consulting, you really get to the heart of things in a very pointed way with the questions that you ask and, and the way you use these things. So what are some of the processes that you use to make sure that you're staying on track and keeping people focused on the right conversations, the right questions? And then what are some of the things you're doing to make sure that you're listening uh, effectively uh, once you've asked those questions? I love it. I love it. Okay. So here's the first thing, going back to budgeting and forecasting. So the problem with that was I, as a budgeting and forecasting person, I'm going to various departments in a company and I'm saying, here's what I need. You know, you need to fill out this budget template or you need to update this account code or you need to tell me what is the average deal size of the solutions that you'll be selling or whatever so I can build my financial model. Now, here's the thing. That's set up for doom, okay? Because if I, I'm basically, if I knock on the door and I'm, and I'm that budgeting and planning person, that person who is going to open the door already is, I, I'm, I'm the bad guy. There's nothing I can do. They're just like, yep. why are you here? Oh God, not this guy again. Now with OKRs, I would knock on the door, right? And I would say, what is the mission of your team? Why do we exist? Who do we, who's our customer? What is the service we offer? What is the impact we're really trying to make? Like, let's really align on where we're going. And now let's talk about for this upcoming, you know, three or four or five or six month period or whatever, some relatively near-term period. What is the objective? Where do you really want to focus to make improvement? This is not about me getting my numbers to put in my budget. I have a, now I've broken free of that world in, in my career. And now this is what happened to me when I was back at that company where I had to meet with those 30 departments. I didn't know what I was going to do. This was the first time I ever did it. So I'd knock on those doors and I would say, they'd be like, okay, yeah, you're here to coach us or whatever. And I would say, listen, what is your big objective? And they would say, well, our objective is to, you know, successfully launch the new program. Really, why is that important? And they would say, well, you know, it's going to help us to retain our customers and all this other stuff, you know, which is really, oh, really, but why is that important? You keep the five whys, right? And then they were like, well, actually, the, it's really important because also there's this competitor and the thing is, you know, with everybody moving to the cloud, we've got this thing and teachers, you know, they don't really have any money, but they can be very good with referring people. So if we can get into that market, like, oh, wow, let's put that. And like, oh yeah. So now we're aligning on why is it important to get this program out so we can get retention of teachers and we need to do it now because if we don't get in, it's a first to market kind of a thing. Those teachers, they only have bandwidth for like a couple items. And by the way, one of those was this Naviant software. That was the client I had. And by the way, my kid just graduated from high school, what, 20 years later from this moment that I was at this company. And guess what? He uses Naviant software. These guys were highly successful, unlike my software startup. I'm not going to say it's all because I asked them these questions, but what I will say is that by asking them these questions and getting them to articulate their objective, and one of the way I would listen is I would type back in real time what they were saying. So this was a trick because it gave me something to do while they were talking, but they would see the words appearing 
And every now and then they would say, well, no, that's not really what I meant. Now, what's interesting is it's exactly what they're saying. But then when they're right. seeing what they're saying, they're saying, no, that's not really what I mean. I actually mean this. So I'm yeah, helping them to piece, iterate, though. right? That's a great way to listen is to actually type out what they're saying, but then make that visible. You, As you're talking, I, I've talked about this in, in a lot of different venues. As you're talking, I'm taking notes. I tell people sometimes, always have something to write on and write with. And if right. you're in person or even if you're on a Zoom, take notes on paper and let people see that you're taking notes. Because yeah. if they see you now, now if you if they see you typing and they know that you're specifically typing, they're seeing the feedback. <laughs> right. They right, know right. what you're typing, right? They know you're not right. like typing a, a a note to your wife or or addressing an email. But when they see you writing those things down, they're going, "Oh, this guy actually is listening. He's actually paying attention. They're seeing it in real time. The value of them actually understanding this guy's not just checked out, waiting for his turn to talk." Right. And that iteration process is happening in real time. You said something that you you went over it quickly, but I want to go back to it real quick. You you use the term the five whys. Right. And I've heard it. I've heard different versions of this, but t t tell me what you mean by the five whys. Well, I learned it when I was at this random company that fast forwarding, by the way, poached me. Right after I did this little consulting thing when I was at Adaptive Planning, this company called BetterWorks. Basically, they were the first OKR software solution. And oh, they funded me. They they uh, they didn't fund me. Well, we got funded by John Doerr, which was actually an, another story. But this was his biggest A round investment since Google. He invested in Google. That's how he made all his money. And then he uh, he put in like even more actually into BetterWorks. And it was you know this is Kleiner Perkins. They don't usually send out like you know ten, twelve, whatever millions it was as an A round. I mean an A round is usually just you know a million or two. There's twelve million for an A round. It's pretty good from Kleiner Perkins. And so I had joined sure. that company. I'm pretty sure I've seen a booth of theirs at the AFP conference for every year for the past. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. So yeah. these guys are doing pretty well. They're mostly HR software now. That's another story. But I'll tell you, BetterWorks poached me because they found out about the work I was doing with this other software company on the East Coast with the OKRs thing. And what ended up happening there is the guy that was the CEO, this guy's gentleman, gentleman by the name of Chris Duggan, was an excellent CEO. Okay. And he was the guy that introduced me to the five whys. And he, he would just keep doing that. And I don't remember exactly. It was part of our little, like, um, in the, we had a wiki, a wiki culture where everything had to go into the wiki. Like, if it wasn't put into the wiki, it didn't happen kind of a thing. So we had to document everything in the wiki. And one of the things was the five whys. So, you know, we're going to um, go after, you know, even with our sales pipeline. Hey, this, we think this is a good prospect. Really? Why? Okay, because of this. Really? Why? And we would keep asking why. And usually it was like the third or fourth why that you actually got somewhere. Because if you just say why once, you're very superficial. You know, it's like, why? Oh, well, they really like our software. Oh, really? Okay, but why? Oh, they like the look and feel. Uh, that's not why people buy software. I mean, why would they want to buy our software? Sure, they like the look and feel, but, but what's underneath that? Oh, well, they yeah. really need something to store all their HR data so that they don't get sued. Well, well, then why would they go with our software? Our software doesn't store all their HR software. They sued. Did you did you miss represent what we do and then they'd be like yeah. well no but you know so that you just keep asking why it turns out to be a great question and that's yeah, where they, i got introduced to the five wives so i think i heard uh i think it was dean graziosi that that has this exercise he calls seven levels deep it's the same concept but the first exposure i had to this was totally um kind of learning by accident just learning through experience when i was doing consulting and you would ask somebody um you know, maybe you met somebody at a networking event and they were like, oh, yeah, I, I really like to talk to you about um, some stuff we have in our company I think you could help with. You sit down with them and you, you ask them a question that's, you know, generally along the lines of, well, what is it that you think I can help with? And they'll give you an answer and you immediately realize, yeah, that's not really the issue. And I think the best analogy I've ever heard of, the best metaphor that I think would make this easy to understand for anybody, that's even if you've never been in consulting, is imagine that example of somebody selling a drill bit, right? The guy goes into Home Depot and he says, I need a quarter inch drill bit. And if you think about it, again, with the, the, the five whys, right? Well, why do you need a, a quarter inch drill bit? Well, because I need to drill a quarter inch hole. Well, why do you need a quarter inch hole? You keep asking enough questions. Well, you need to drill that hole because you need to put up this, uh, this shelf. Well, why do you need to put up the shelf? Well, because I need to get all the stuff off the, the floor in the garage and put it, well, why do you need to do that? Well, because my wife's been on my case because my garage is, at the end of the day, you're not looking for a quarter inch drill bit. 
you want to make your wife happy because you you mm-hmm. had a mess in the garage. Yeah, that's exactly what you're it. really that's the buying. Outcome. What you're really buying, the key result, the outcome you're looking for is you want to make your wife happy because you cleaned up a mess that you shouldn't have had in the first place. And right. the drill bit's just this inconsequential piece in that whole, you know, uh, waterfall of, of things that yeah. has to happen. That's it. Um, and and what happens is people are so busy in the world of work, just getting stuff done, right? Like you said, shopping for the drill bit or whatever, that they're not taking a step back. So a classic example would be in my typical OKRS coaching conversation, like I know I've done a good job when at the end of the coaching session, the person I'm working with is actually excited about work. They're, they have clarity. They know what they need to do. They know why they need to do it. And they know they know exactly you know the ultimate outcome that they're going for that's going to be measurable. And they can even sometimes propose that to their manager. I'll tell you, managers love you when you when you go up to them and say, "Hey, this is the outcome I'm shooting for." As opposed to, "These are all the things I'm going to do." They don't want to see a to do list with you know 25 items. Wow, you're really busy. That doesn't make them feel good. That just makes them wonder, "Are you focused?" But when you start with telling them, "This is the outcome we're going for," they just love it. So yeah. what happened was. I would see a, um, a marketing, and I was a marketing guy myself, so I would see a marketing guy and I could kind of relate. I'd say, well, really, what is your objective? Our objective is to update the website. Really, okay, but, okay, we, why? Well, you know, we need to make it have more inbound marketing. It needs to be fresher. I'm like, okay, sure, that sounds pretty good. How do we know that you've successfully updated the website? Because otherwise, it's just, you know, I update the website, so what? How do I know I'm making a, um, you know, I'm improving the website? And they say, well, we have to post blogs. So uh, they say, well, I'm going to post, you know, five blogs this month. Okay, but that's not a key result. That's just, I'm going to post five blogs this month. That's an action item. That's output. You're measuring how much work we're doing. I'm posting these blogs. Cool. What would you rather do? Post five blogs that are, you know, okay, or post one really good one? Oh, well, obviously, I'd rather post one really good one. Well, what makes a blog good? How do we know a blog is good? Have you ever posted a blog that was really good before? And then usually they say, oh, wow, that's a good question. Usually they haven't thought about that because they're just so busy posting the blogs, right? Yeah. They're, they're like, Ben, they're let me show you. I have the blog it. calendar. I have the blog titles. I have blog guest speakers. I have this new, you know, graphics. I'm doing, they're, they're caught up in all these details, but they don't even yeah. really know why they're posting the blog other than they said, well, they told us we need to, I mean, my job is to maintain the blog, you know, post the blog, you know. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of ready fire aim going on there. So you you had a, you repeated a question a couple of times and I'm and I'm curious about you you asked several times in this example that you were talking about how we know right so it makes me wonder in your OKRs coaching I'm guessing that questions are a huge part of this right asking the right questions asking the right follow up questions yeah. being a good listener um, maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about your book the the OKRs field book yeah. Um, which is a book that you put out. How long has this been out now? Came out in 2022. So it's been out. Okay. Oh, it's going to be a year old um, next week. And so this book is actually intended mostly for people that are coaches, correct? Probably right. could be useful for anyone, you know, even if you're at a company doing OKRs yourself. But do you have some of the questions that you would ask um, and, and the framework for this yeah. in that book? I mean, it's funny that you asked that because that was in the in the epilogue. I know you haven't read it yet, so it's kind of uh, omniscient of you to say this. But in the epilogue, which is the end of the book, <laughs> I actually have a list of all the questions that OKRS coaches ask. And this is the first time we've gathered, you know, these are the questions that OKRS coaches ask. Because OKRS coaches, what they do is ask questions. So um, the book that you need if you want to get excited about OKRS is called Measure What Matters. It sold millions of copies worldwide. It's by this guy, John Doors, the guy that invested in Google, et cetera. And, and Measure What Matters is all about, you know, it's got Bill Gates in there. You got Al Gore, you got Bono. I could tell you the people that are in my book and you'd be like, I have no idea who these people are. My book is more of a operational thing is supposing that you do want to do OKRs, you know, because you read Measure What Matters. This is more the how-to book. And like you said, it's going to have the questions you need to ask. Now, going back to that blog example. So you would ask, well, what is the intended outcome of publishing the blog? This is the magic question that I learned from Jeff Walker. So often when I was being an OKRS coach in my early career, I found when Jeff Walker would ask me these questions, that question of what is the intended outcome? I'd be like, oh my God, that's such a great question. You know, we're going to do the webinar for the new release. Okay, well, how will we know the webinar is good? What is the intended outcome of the webinar? Oh, never really thought about that. We were just doing the webinar, just like check the box, we did the webinar. 
And you know what they say is if you check all your boxes, but we don't have success, then that's not success. <laughs> you success yeah. is not checking the boxes. And this was a breakthrough for me. And so when I asked this one marketing person, well, how we know the blog, what is the intended outcome of the blog? They said, I never thought about it. We eventually realized it's to increase the number of leads without Yahoo or Hotmail email addresses, but rather with company email addresses that are accepted by the sales team as a qualified lead from 10 per month to 20 per month. That was it. And the blog was a way to do that. So we could even say these are attributed to the blog from the landing pages or whatever. But what it told you was you better not put a blog on there that's not going to have a landing page because otherwise it's just so they read it. Well, then what? It might be really well written. I don't yeah. care. If it doesn't lead to a lead, <laughs> right, so, then it's useless. So you just made me think about whether you know anything at all about OKRs or not. Now, now, now you've got me motivated to read this um, quickly because... As you were talking, I, I remembered what for one of the, the uh, courses that I was developing, I was looking for sources of better questions to ask, yeah. right? To, to help people similar to what you're talking about with OKRs. But I was thinking more at a conceptual level. And I actually came across, it was a book about um, designing software. Mm. And it was more principles. And they were talking about the types of questions to ask in the design process. And I actually stole some of the questions not because it had anything to do with software, but they were more principles-based. Like what you're talking about is getting to the root of the issue. As you were talking, I was thinking about, I've had this issue in my own business where I've said, well, you know, I need to put more content up on my website. Well, why? Well, because somebody told me that you need to have that, but I, I never got to the OKR level of drilling down and asking the five questions deep to figure out, oh, well, I never had a call to action on any of those. So I could have quadrupled the number of articles I put out there. And I'd probably never see any move in, in any incoming leads because I never actually asked the right question to tie it to the actual outcome that I was looking for. So um, I may skip to the back of the book and start from there. With yeah, you know, you should, you got to do it. You got to do it. And like going back to that first experience I had with OKRs, which I think I even talk a little bit about in the field book, but I, I abbreviated it. I kind of minimized the story. The inside story is that when I met with those 30 department managers and I did OKRs drafting, that was the first time I was doing OKRs coaching. I mean, the, the, the quality of the conversation, the level of enthusiasm, the feedback that I got was so different. It was literally night and day difference. Like, you know, when I was, like I said, when I knock on the door with budgeting and planning and I'd say, hey, I got to get this a financial model. And I was a good financial modeler. My, my boss loved me, but boy, everybody else in the company, I mean, I, I was trying to make small talk and you know, do damage control, but they were like, oh God, here comes this guy again. He's going to want to build some financial model based on what I'm doing or something like that. It's not going to help me. And when I was doing OKRS coaching, it was like right away, these people were giving me feedback. Wow, nobody's doing this. Like, this is really helpful. You know, you, you know, can you come back and can we do this again? Like in you know a couple of days after I've had a chance to review this with my team, can you come and meet with my whole team and like facilitate a workshop on this? And I'm like, I don't know, I guess so. I don't really know how, but sure. You know, if that's what you want to do, I mean, they're paying me $4,000 a week. So I guess I'll come over and do it. And I'll tell you what, that was really the pivoting point in my career, because to be honest with you, uh, that budgeting and planning time when we met and I was with a light and I got fired and all that for my startup, that was basically just like my life was like a rat on a treadmill, you know, or whatever you want to say, a rat in a cage, just running around in circles. I wasn't going anywhere. And I felt like I'm not going to say it was a complete waste of my life. I'm going to say, thank God, you know, I discovered this OKR thing because the greatest thing that happened to me after that, I got that first OKR project was paid. But this was before anybody even really knew what OKRs was. This was in other words, and I learned you're not supposed to be in a business model where you're educating people. I had tried that. In fact, mm. that's to some extent what we were doing with Alight. We were trying to educate people about the beauty of unit rate amount planning and how it's so cool. And once you understood it, you thought it was cool. But the problem is nobody understood it. So we would yeah. be spending all of our time and money trying to educate all these people who would then think it's cool. But then they would have to go convince their boss that, that it's cool. And their yeah, boss would say, to, well, I, I hear this all the time. I don't, I, I don't know if you watch uh, the TV show Shark Tank, but I, it's one of my favorite shows. Oh, yeah. They talk about that a lot. You'll see somebody pitch a product and the sharks will ask questions and ask questions, then they'll finally get it. And a lot of times you'll hear them go, you know what? I love your product, but 
I don't want I don't want to be in a business where where we got to go educate people. Yeah, we got to pay the money to educate a, people, right? Yeah, it's a it's a process to educate them. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us money and resources. And you know, I'm not sure if if I. So if what I did though, this is what I did though. This is the weird part, John. Right? So I my advisor Jeff Walker, right? He said, "Hey Ben, um, nobody really knows what OKRs is, but if you're adding value like you did on that one project, here's here's an idea. Why don't you quit your job now?" And he, because he said, Ben, what is the one thing that you do that you really like to do that really adds value? And I said, well, it's OKR's coaching. And he said, well, how many hours a week are you doing that? I said, I don't know, three or four. And he said, Ben, you got to make that 30 or 40. And I said, Jeff, I mean, there's no market for that. I, my job is to do budgeting and planning or doing the software thing. You know, so, yeah, I mean, nobody, he said, well, go out and do it for free. Knock on people's doors. Like you're saying, they want to talk to you. When you do this, you're saying it's good. If it's really good, just start doing it for free. And eventually people will start paying you money and you'll find out just how big the market is. And I said, okay. And then he gave me a really good part of his speech. This was the part where he said, Ben, from an ethical perspective, you only live once. So if you're telling me that you're really good at this thing, you love to do it and it really adds value, it would be unethical for you to not do it. Think about that for a second, right? You can't, you, this is your chance. Sales <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, you're right. Okay, I'm gonna go do it. So I gave it a shot. I did about 25 free OKRs coaching sessions to try to build up testimonials. I recorded them. I reflected on it. Over time, I eventually was able to start to get uh, some clients. And, and then it was kind of like I never looked back. And as far as how big the market is, now I have like uh, an OKRs coach network of over 100 coaches worldwide. I got five coaches on my team that are basically you know contractors for me. I just did my first deal like last week, actually, with a purchase order close to half of a million dollars. This is a thing. It's a thing. This OKRs coaching is a thing. It adds real value. People love it. But it is more of a framework. It's more of a set of questions that you're asking as opposed to KPIs, which are like a set of metrics that you're tracking. That's so, actually a really good way to put it. It's like OKRs is a set of questions that you're asking, whereas KPIs are a set of metrics that you're tracking. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> that's our that's our take home. Yeah, that is that's kind of that's kind of catchy. So man, a bunch of questions that j- jump to mind. So so one of them is you talked about Jeff Walker, your mentor. Yeah. Um, you kind of answered the question I was going to ask. One of the things I was going to ask is how did you get him to be a mentor? And you you remind me, I forget Alex Ramosi. I was listening to uh Alex Ramosi's got a business, I don't know, like a hundred million uh uh year revenue business, a multitude of companies. He was talking in one of the the videos that he put out in social media about mentors. And he was saying that one of the things that you need to do when you find a mentor is you got to freaking listen to their advice, right? If they tell you to do something and then you don't do it and you go back to them and ask them for more advice, they're probably going to ask you the first question. Did you do what I told you to do the first time? And if you didn't do it, then you're probably not going to have a mentor for very long. So the takeaway I got from that is Jeff Walker told you to do these things for free. And it would have been very, very easy like probably 90 plus percent of people would have been like, I can't afford to do stuff for free. Right. But you listen. So I'm curious, what was it that made you realize that Jeff Walker was a guy who you wanted to be a mentor and that you needed to listen to him, even though yeah. it meant doing stuff for free? Well, first of all, the guy was smart. Okay. You know, he graduated from Brown with a math major. I think he went on to Disney where he was a marketing guy. And I think he was one of the better marketing guys. And he was like a polymath, right? Because he was an engineer who could program and obviously he probably didn't get C's in Fortran. And he was the guy that invented a software solution and all that. So he was really good in computer science. Well, it turns out he was also a CFO. He went on to become the CFO of Oracle. And that's kind of how he got involved with um, Alight, my startup in budgeting and planning. And so there's a guy that's like, you know, he's made it. He's made it big. He's got a strong track record. Super smart. And you, you, know, you listen to him and you're like, wait a minute. Every time he asks a question, you're like, that's a really good question. Other people don't ask questions like that. And one of the things I learned from him through, through his modeling experience is that the really smart people don't give all the answers. The really smart people Ooh. ask the questions. One of the things Jeff said to me was that he, cause he was the, one of the first guys to do like multi-million dollar deals at Oracle for the sales, even though he wasn't a sales guy, right? Here he is. I'm telling you the guy could do anything, right? I mean, basically he said his skill is that he figures out what the problem is. And then he applies pressure on that problem until it <laughs> solves. And he said, he said, here's the thing. All these people are out there trying to solve the problem and they don't even know what the problem is. 
And so you're not going to solve it. It turns out, but yeah. what he said is once we really understand the problem, if we take the time to clearly define the problem, he said, most of the time, it's really easy to solve. It's just that that's, we're not taking the time to understand the problem. And that's the problem. That's what you said about the really smart people don't have all the answers. It reminds me of uh, Ty Lopez was talking about some, he went to some big event and Elon Musk was there and they just happened to end up, they were in the bathroom and they're standing there washing their hands in the bathroom. And um, they they sort of knew each, who each other was, didn't know each other really well. And Elon Musk asked him something about social media because Ty Lopez had a you know real big social media presence. And he said he proceeded to throw up information on Elon Musk for like 10 or 15 minutes. And then he finished talking and he's, he asked him a question and Musk said something like, I don't know, but thanks for the advice. And he walked out and he goes, I realize why Elon Musk is so smart is, is that he understands that sometimes it's better to ask the right questions and shut up and listen. He goes, I just gave this guy all this information of all my ideas and strategies <laughs> that I charge people big bucks for. That's right. Funny. But because of who he was, you know, I felt compelled to 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 talk to him. But that's something um, that I think a lot of people. A lot of people think that smarter people talk more. And the truth is, you see the same thing. You go back to Shark Tank again. You'll hear people comment on that where um, somebody's doing their pitch and, and different sharks are asking questions. And stuff. every once in a while, you hear someone go, I haven't heard anything from Mark Cuban. And he'll go, yep, I'm just listening. Yeah, he'll do that a lot where he waits to hear all the other people ask all their questions. He might even wait for them to, to give an offer and wait for negotiations to start. And I think a lot of that, um, it reminds me of some of the guys I used to work for early in my career, where I had the good fortune of being in the room. And I had no place to say anything. I just took notes and I listened. Yeah. And a lot of my early education was completely informal. It was just being the fly on the wall in the room, listening to these much more experienced guys, asking questions of each other, negotiating, and, and then later asking my boss, who was one of the guys negotiating, why did you ask that? What was the importance of this? And it kind of, it, it gets to that, that blind spot that we all have throughout our lives. So hopefully it changes, right? It's that, that stuff we don't know, we don't know. Right. right. These questions that we don't even know to ask because we're completely unaware. Well, that's it. Of, that's of like, that, and that's really what OKR's coaching is all about, right? When, when I mentioned that question of, well, what is the intended outcome of the blog, right? Such a classic because here's this guy, he's trying to manage this blog thing and he doesn't even know the answer to that. And here's what he's saying. Wow. I never even really thought about that. I, and I think that's, that's a really good question. And I never even really thought about that. That's the point with OKR's coaching. You're going to go in there and do this. Like I, I'll tell you one last story before we wrap up. I have this guy, Wayne Eckerson, who wrote a book, Performance Dashboards. He was going to become my mentor for KPIs because I found out, I knew him sort of through, a, actually through, um, God, I can't remember his name. I'm, I'm blanking. But I knew him through a guy from our budgeting and forecasting conference. Um, this guy introduced me. He was like the president of the IMA, Gary Kokins. That's who it was. And Gary Kokins is a, is a big time guy who was, you know, this you know, senior leader who speaks at all these different events. And he knew this guy, Wayne Eckerson. So I said, Wayne, I want to talk to you about OKRs and, and also compare it to KPIs. I think you're going to love it. But I mean, let me see if I can help you with your business. I want to be, I want to do a free OKRs coaching session with you, right? You know, because that, that was back in those days. And Wayne kept saying, you know, no, 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 I don't have time. And I'm like, can I just get half an hour? You know, I think you'll love it. He's like, no, 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 I don't have time. Finally, he says, okay, I'll give you half an hour. So I get him on the phone and I start talking about his business and literally we're on the phone for about two hours and I'm asking him all these questions and, and I'm like, Wayne, I got to go. You know, I mean, like I budgeted a half an hour, but you know, it's been two hours and I think I got to say, oh, it's already been two hours. Wow. And the great quote that Wayne gave me was, you know, I just forgot how valuable it is to take a step back and kind of ask these questions about your business. You know, this was really helpful. Thanks for doing that. We should do this again sometime. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. It was kind of funny because here was the guy that was blowing me off this whole time. And then when we finally did it, he wouldn't want to stop, right? It was like, yeah. I can't get enough of this. And that was yet another indicator to me that this OKR's coaching thing, it's one of those things that like people really benefit from, like you said, even though they don't think they will, they just need to have somebody ask them these questions and become, you know, take a step back and, you know, just sort of a neutral thing. 
And I'll, I'll leave you this last final thought, which is pretty funny, actually. A lot of uh, my clients say, how do you know so much about our business? And the funny thing is, I don't know anything about their business. I'm just asking questions that I would ask about to anybody. Yeah, but, you it's know, the same it's principles based. So it's a lot yeah, of the same questions exactly. just applied to a different client, a different industry. Exactly. So I guess what I want to say is some of my clients will say, oh, you know, we don't want to hire this guy because we want somebody that has healthcare experience or we need somebody that knows about the pharmaceutical industry. And my point is, actually, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're a good OKRs coach, and you know how to ask questions, you can help anybody in any industry. And in fact, what we found is inside companies will actually sometimes pair people like a finance person with a marketing person or an engineer with like a salesperson. And we'll have them talk to each other where one of them is asking questions as a naive coach who doesn't know the vernacular of their specifics because then their questions are a little bit more basic and they're also not filtering through what they think they already know about it. Ooh, and yeah, so this actually, are... exactly. Yeah. And so then, then they, they learn more and they, and they, they end up learning a ton and they end up ask, being really good at asking questions, especially these engineers. They tend to be really good at asking questions. And then they report back to us, wow, it was a great session. I learned so much about what the treasury team is doing or what the finance team is doing. And I, and I feel like now it actually helps me to be a better engineer to understand that context. So I'm not going to say that OKRs are going to solve the world's problems, but I do think that OKRs coaching is really like catching on. It's becoming super popular now. And I guess the question would be like, if it's going like that and you're seeing this exponential growth, you know, when does it peak? And I'm not going to say it's just beginning because it's getting pretty big, but it's like, it's going to keep growing for a while and it'll probably stabilize, you know, maybe like in the next four or five years, but it's an exciting time for OKRS coaching. And so, you know, that's, I guess we're getting kind of near the end of the hour. So I'll, I'll leave it with that. Yeah. So that actually kind of, kind of makes me think about a question that I didn't have on my list, which is you, you kind of got me more interested in, in the topic of OKRs in general. In your opinion, what does it take for someone to become a good OKRs coach? Like what, yeah. if you, if you were, trying to, to, if you were proactively recruiting to try to find someone to, to make a good OKRs coach, who, yeah. what would that look so, like? So first of all, they're usually somebody who has 10 to 20 years of experience, let's say, you know, in, in a various kind of consulting kind of lifestyle. So they've worked across different industries. Maybe like, like I mentioned, I was doing marketing, then I was doing sales. So, the, so you want to be able to have a basic vocabulary of business. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, if you were like, all I did was, you know, work in an outbound call center or all I did was program computers, it's going to be tough to make the transition to care consulting or coaching. Actually, that was a slip, a Freudian slip. If you're a <laughs> coach, right? So if you're already a coach, actually making the transition to care coaching is really easy. People who are used to coaching, OKR's coaching is like just a little sweet little pivot. If you're a consultant, it's harder to go into OKRs coaching because you're used to being the one with the PowerPoint slide saying, you know, I did my benchmarking analysis. Let me make my presentation. I'm going to advise you. Coaching is really more inquiry. I'm going to ask you a set of questions, right? So you do have to have that experience. What I will tell you though, is in general, somebody who is a good listener, who's interested in communication, maybe like you mentioned those softer skills and things, mm -hmm. but also knows the basics of math or metrics, right? You have to be able to think about things like, oh, increasing this from 20 to 40. Oh, that's like a doubling. Like you have to have basic mathematical knowledge. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, but having some familiar with like, oh, engagement scores are measured this, or like, what is Gallup? Having a, ba a basic understanding of metrics these days, what does EBITDA stand for? Just like, like I said, a basic business vernacular will help. doesn't mean you need an MBA. Right. But I do think that there's an opportunity for a lot of people to take on this role also inside of organizations. So um, agile coaches, people in PMO, HR people, sometimes even ops or finance people, they can add this OKRS coaching skill set into their portfolio. And maybe they can be one of those people that's only doing three or four hours a week of OKRS coaching inside their organization. But this is a way to add value. So mm -hmm. I would say Really, anybody can do it because the skills, to be honest with you, it's not that hard. This is not rocket science. I will it's say that- It's a specific that set of skills, though. It is. And I will say that the first book ever written for OKRs coaches with sort of a designed you know, framework for how to be an OKRs coach is the OKRs field book. That's why I wrote it. Okay. Because what was happening was so many people were coming to me this book? saying, yeah, that one. And they were saying to me like, look, I have a client. They're doing OKRs. Ben, I don't know how to do it. How do I do OKRs coaching? And I would try, I would help them because I like to help people. But after like the 50th person approached me and none of these people would pay me money because they're like, you know, they're a coach with a client. They're not going to give me any money. So I said, I'm going to help you out. And finally, I'm like, I should write a book for these people. Like there's a lot of these people out there. 
what I will say is there's not that many actually, because OKRs coaches are, are like within a company, there might be, you know, five or 10 OKRs coaches for every thousand people, right? It's not like everybody's an OKRs coach. Whereas some of the books like Measure What Matters, everybody has to buy it. Like the CEO will just buy it for everybody in the leadership team. The OKRs field book, you'll buy it for like two people. You know, the OKRs project managers or whatever, they need it, but nobody else really wants to read it. So I can't sell very many copies. At least that's my excuse for not making this be a bestseller. But what I will tell you is of the people who read the book, it's a very likely chance that you're going to say, wow, this is great. And I'm not bragging, but right right now we have a 4.9 rating on the book on Amazon and nobody gets a 4.9 book. That's like 80 reviews. Nobody has a 4.9 review. Everybody's giving this book five stars, fine print of the people who are actually reading it. And there's just, you know, so I would say if you're thinking about OKRs coaching or you're an OKRs coach, absolutely. This is the book for you because it's the only choice. I'm a monopoly. But on the (laughs) other hand, if you're like a CEO, you know, you know, you're a leader of a big company and your company happens to use OKRs and you don't want to get into the greasy, grimy, gopher guts of OKRs, this is probably not the book for you. And if you read it, you'll probably give it a lower rating and you'll bring my 4.9 down. So I hope you don't read it. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, you piqued my interest because uh, for, for those of you that have, have seen other uh, episodes where we've talked about coaching, a few, two or three years ago, I went through Tony Robbins coaching program. Mm. and I actually have not marketed myself much as a coach because I think where I got stuck was deciding on what specific type of coaching I wanted to do. Sure. And you've piqued my interest with this. Um, now you've got me thinking I, I probably want to dig into this. Yeah, you got to become an OKR coach. Yeah. Well, seriously, though, a lot of the stuff that you talked about reminds me of the days when I was doing consulting, but it, it it's different in a, in a lot of good ways. Um because it's a, a little bit less in the minutia. Um, yeah. I think when I did consulting, part of what I didn't like about the consulting is I was a lot more in the minutia in, in spreadsheets and measuring yeah. and calculating. Yeah. Whereas this is much more at a strategic level. It um, is. So maybe we can have a you know ho- totally separate uh, conversation about that another time. Um, you mentioned earlier when we talked, so this is your first book, right? Well, second book. Yeah, the first book was second 2016. Book. That was a book I co-authored back in 2016. And actually that was by about three months, the second book on OKRs. The first one was Radical Focus 2016, earlier in the year. My book with Paul Niven came out and he was a balanced scorecard expert, but we met and we wrote a book on OKRs, came out in 2016. And then in 2018, the book Measure What Matters came out. And that's really by John Doerr, right? That's the big one that kind of marked the beginning of the OKRs era, right? By 2019, you know, thousands of copies of, of Measure What Matters were sitting on the desks of, you know, CEOs all over the world. And that's the book that still sells the most because it's so like, you know, the CEO reads and says, that's it. I want to get this for everybody. Do you have another book in the works? Yeah. The OKRS Field Book version two. So okay. what you have here is version one. And I have a contributor from China and then I have two from the United States. In version two, I'm going to have contributors from all over the world. We're going to have about 10 to 15 contributors in there. So it's not going to be just like, this is the world according to Ben. Although actually, even though I only have three contributors, there's actually quite a bit of other input from other OKRs coaches in there. But what's going to happen is in the next edition is we're going to talk a little bit about OKR software tools. That's a hot topic. So we'll get into that. We're going to talk a little bit about how to embed alignment into every little step of an OKRs program. We're going to talk a little bit about also strategy. So I touch on it, but okay, but... How do you make sure we have what's called a minimal viable strategy as context for OKRs? So there's some areas there. Also, how do you announce the OKRs program from a change management perspective? There's some things that weren't quite covered in the OKRs field book and actually by design, because these were areas that I'm not really sure I can definitively say this is the way to do it. I really wanted to limit it to, hey, guys, like this is the stuff I know I know. There's some stuff I know I don't know, so I won't put that in. But then there's some stuff that I think I might know. And I'm not going to put that in a book because I want this to be the stuff that's like pure gold. And actually, some of the reviews lately have been pure gold. The book is under 200 pages, and it is the stuff that I know you need to know. And so version two, I think, is coming out in 2025. We'll see. And it's going to have a little bit more. It's also possible that I might shrink the book and make it even more into its essential components and then have like a secret teacher's guide. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> only, only for the friends that I know, that's going to be like 400 pages. And it's going to be like, you know, only the insider's guide. So I don't know yet, but in 2025, that's probably what's going to happen. 
Cool. So for, for our listeners, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? And also, I think you mentioned before we started rolling here that um, for anyone who's interested that you're available to do a free initial consultation on OKRs. Well, yeah. Look, the best way to get in touch with me is probably LinkedIn, because if you Google or LinkedIn Ben Lamort, there's no other Ben Lamort. So I got a, I got a really unique name. And also you can send me an email, ben at okrs.com. That's an easy email address to contact me with. But what I would say is, look, if you're already doing OKRs, it's a blast, right? Let's just, and if you want, I can sign an NDA, but like half an hour to an hour, you can show me your OKRs. I can give you feedback. It's going to be value add. It's fun for me. It's fun for you. And there's no cost because if you made it, like I said, if you made it through this far of the webinar or whatever we're doing here, a podcast, who knows what we're doing. If you've made it this far, I got it. You got to get something. And I would even take it up a step further and say, uh, limit maybe, I don't know, 20. But the point is, if you if you tell me you want the OKRs field book, I'm happy to send you a copy. I can get it through my author discount and shoot it over to you. And if you want to learn more about OKRs coaching and even consider being an OKRs coach, I also have this thing called the OKRs Coach Network, and I can tell you all about that. So a lot of possibilities, but I would say just follow up with me on LinkedIn. You'll find me that way. Or send me a note, ben at okrs.com. And we can get a conversation started. And of course, John, you're my first guy I want to follow up with. I want to hear about if you want to be an OKRS coach and you know how we can get that. It doesn't need to be a full-time job. You can you can Dude, make I this gotta, be part of your skill set. I gotta tell you that I did I had zero intention of anything like that when, when we first scheduled this. I just thought you have such a great background and such a varied background. I love talking to you. We could talk for hours and hours, obviously, but you know, we gotta we gotta uh, wrap this up. My intention was just for you to share a little bit about your background in OKRs because the intended audience for this is finance and accounting folks, right? So I knew yes. that that was something that would would bring some value. But the more we talked about this, the more it kind of reminded me of the things that I liked about when I used to do consulting. Yeah, And it sounds like a lot of the stuff that I liked w- without some of the stuff that I didn't like yeah, and some of the stuff that pulled me into training, which was asking questions, asking better questions, listening better, getting more effective at that. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have a follow-up conversation if for nothing else to find out more about that. Yeah. Uh, with that, I do want to respect your time and go ahead and wrap up here. You guys know how to get in touch with Ben and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you.